0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at NorrisFerryChurch.org. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, what a great crowd. It's so good to see everybody here. As people come in, we'll see who likes the front row because that's where they're going. But uh, it's so good to see everybody. We're working through the book of Genesis and we are into the... Second part of chapter 2. Now, let's review where we have been because that's very important for understanding what the context is for our text today. We've seen, we've been meeting our God. Uh, We think a lot of times as the God of Genesis and the God of creation as a different person than Jesus. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God. He is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was at creation. He was there before creation began And He spoke everything into creation. It was all for Him, through Him, and to Him, and to His glory. And so we've been meeting our God, Jesus, as the Creator. And what we've seen is that He created all things. He created all things good. And then His crowning creation, the flow of the narrative, is building to this crowning creation and... Man, or humanity, was the pinnacle of creation. We've seen the sanctity and the dignity of life in this creation account that all things were created for humanity's enjoyment. The final creation was humanity, and so it's distinct from creation, and there is great dignity and sanctity of life seen in this account of creation. And then we saw last week his purpose, the reason God created humanity, the purpose for which we exist was to worship God and we said two words really capture the essence of what it means to worship God and and we're talking about this to help us understand this is not worship is not just what we did singing songs that is certainly worship but worship in God is so much more comprehensive than that does anybody remember the two words from last week that really capture what it means to worship God I, there's an old song i said that was written trust and obey Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's a great song, right? So trust and obey. We see that in the creation account because... God created them. He gave them all that was good. He said, this is all yours. God is working. God is producing the fruit. God is watering the garden. God is causing the trees to grow. And God says, subdue the earth. And and man's job in this idyllic scene, the word Eden, the Garden of Eden, means delight. It's this idyllic scene before chapter 3, before sin enters the world. In this idyllic scene, man is in the presence of God enjoying God's glory as displayed in the the gold and the jewels and the precious stones that are mentioned in the text. The glory of God is there. Man is in his presence, enjoying his creation. His job is to harvest the fruit of God's labor, enjoy that. And, And it's just this idyllic scene. And we see that he says, God says, enjoy all this. It's all for you. That's how much I love you. It's all for your good. And then he says one thing, eat of all those trees, but don't eat of one tree. And what's that tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, simply trust that I know what's good and evil for your life. Now, we kind of think, as humans, we think, well, what a great thing it would be to decide for myself what is good and what is evil. And what we see in the scriptures, that's not a good thing. The only thing that happens when we decide for ourselves apart from God is an unraveling of God's good design. And we'll see that next week in chapter 3. But God says, I've provided everything that is good for you. You can trust me. I love you. I'm good. I'm sovereign. I'm powerful. And I'm providing it all for you. Your purpose in life is simply trust me enough to obey me. Trust that I know what's good for you. Trust that I'm providing what's good for you. And so trust me enough that simply you obey and I'll take care of blessing you and taking care of all your needs. And as you trust God and obey God, you enjoy the, the presence of God. You enjoy this glorious scene and that is captured in the phrase to that we are image bearers of God we are made in the image of God and so as we enjoy God in a loving intimate trusting obedient relationship we reflect the glory of God and God's purpose was that he fills his earth with that glory as his people, as he blesses them with children, and they are raised to do the same. And so all, as the children would grow, and as we would have generation after generation, fill the earth with God's glory. And we said that's not some nebulous, weird glory cloud. That is the glory of God seen through his people, simply enjoying him, enjoying his gifts and his creation in a loving, trusting, obedient relationship. That's our purpose in life. That's why God created you. And that's the context we come to as we come to chapter 2, verse 18 and following, and we see this as a classic foundational passage for marriage. And so today we're looking at marriage, and we're going to see it involves more than marriage. It also involves godly friendships and community and relationships, but it does ultimately point to marriage. And so what we're going to say, see, is God's design, God's purpose, God's reason for marriage. So let me ask you something. Pew Research did a, a study and they asked married couples, what is the number one most important reasons people get married? What do you think was number one? What would you say, give me feedback, was what they married people. This is not necessarily what you would say. I'm going to let you off the hook. What did they say was the number one reason, most important reason to get married? What would you say the answer was? Children. Children. Love. What was that? Careness. Careness. What else? Security. Security. Companionship. All right. Those are popular answers, survey says. Number one answer was 93%. Where is it in my notes? 93% look at me. Where is it in my notes? Okay, 93% of people, I need longer arms every day. They're right here, but I just refuse. I'm sorry. I'm like, this is getting bad. Let me see if I can zoom it in even bigger, but then I can't turn the pages. Where is it? 93% of the people said love. Y'all are like, I'm a winner. 87% of people said the most important reason to get married is lifelong commitment. 81% of people said it's for companionship. That's the most important reason. And 59% said the most important reason to marry is uh, children, having children. And 31% said the most important reason to marry is financial stability. So now let me ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud. Why did you marry? What do you, if you're dating, what are you looking for in a spouse? What is the purpose of your marriage? What do you, as you date or, or look kind of as a friend, maybe that's a person out, what are you looking for? I don't know what's going on back there, but they're having a lot of fun back there. Frank, don't answer out loud. Is that what's going on over here? Money? Okay, good, Frank. Thanks for letting us know. (laughs) All right, so we marry for lots of reasons. I would say if the number one reason people marry is love, my very next survey would be, okay, now, how do you find love? How do you define that? What does that look like? What is it that you really mean when you say marry for love? Today, we're going to try to answer that question from God's Word. What is the purpose of marriage? And we're going to find the answer in chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Then the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed its place up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then he said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." Lord, I ask for your help this morning that you would teach us the divine purpose of relationships, the divine purpose of friendships and community, and and ultimately the the most intimate of friendships and the most intimate of community, marriage, the divine purpose for marriage. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what is the purpose of for our marriage. Let's begin in verse 18. We see the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, we read that and we know that phrase is probably in all kinds of weddings, but we need to stop and think for a minute how shocking this statement is. Remember what we saw last week. This was the ideal scene. It's, it's intentionally written to be idyllic, like this is the perfect scenario. And it's, God creating, God working, God blessing, man enjoying God's blessings. And the ultimate, best, and most wonderful blessing is that God Himself is there. And then this shocking statement happens, which crumbles this picture of the ideal scene. It is not good. And what we've been seeing is God created and it was good. God created and it was good. Repeated over and over, God created it was good, and it's, pulp, its pinnacle is God created it was very good. And then it says, "But it's not good that man be alone." And so this is very surprising, and it, it, it should arrest our attention as readers of the scriptures. It's written intentionally to say, "Whoa, wait a minute, pump the brakes." And what we see is it's not good for man to be alone. In the midst of of this scene that God is providing everything good, God pumps the brakes and God says, but there's something not good here. And every man on the planet would say, wait a minute, what's not good about this scene? I'm in nature. I'm enjoying God's nature and nobody's asking me to do anything. This is perfect. And God says, this is not good that you live alone. And so what's wrong with this scene? Well, before we go into detail, let me just say that we need to pause for a minute minute and realize that what we see here is in the creation of, in the fabric of creation. God's divine design is not that we live in isolation. As a pastor, when I meet with people, I will tell you some of the most S- challenging situations is when I'm ministering and, and, and loving, with someone, loving on someone who has been alone by themselves for a long time. We just have a hard time having healthy thinking and healthy lifestyles when we live in isolation. There, the, the, the prison system creates isolation as punishment. It is not good that we live in isolation. And yet we live in a culture that the stream is flowing against relationships, against friendships, against community. It, when you go into uncivilized societies and you do mission work you see community happens a lot better relationships happen a lot better so what another way of saying that is the more civilized we get as people the more isolated we get as people and god says that is not good for you we need relationships we need friendships we need community And yet we get in our busy schedules, we hit the alarm, and the moment we get up, we already feel like we're behind schedule, and we rush to get ready, we rush into the car, we zip in our car by ourselves to work, or we drop our kids off, and then we're by ourselves, and we're glad to be by ourselves in our car, and then we get to our office, and we go in our office, and we close the door, and we're by ourselves, or we're in our cubicle by ourselves, or we're practicing something by ourselves, and then we get work done, and we work through lunch because we're so busy, and so then we rush home, and then we finish homework, or we finish errands, and we get everything done, and we, we pull into our driveway with six-foot fences, making sure that nobody can see us, and we don't see them, and we get into our garage, and we We close the garage so that nobody can get us when we're getting out of our car. And we go into our house and we never see anybody. And if that's the way it goes, we think that was a good day. (laughs) And God says, that's not good. We need relationships. We need community. And everything's working against it. And that's one of the reasons why we as a church say, if you're a member here we, we, we want you, we require you to find community because it is healthy and good to have people in your life. And so this text is not just about marriage. This is about a fundamental divine design of our lives that we need relationships. We need community. We say, I don't like people. They're weird. They're different. I'm the only normal person on the planet. And I say, the Christ in me greets the Christ in you. And when we have Christ, we have unity that transcends all diversity, that transcends all gender differences, economic difference, ethnic, racial. All differences dissolve. There is a unity that is shared in Christ that enables us to have community that transcends all of that. And God has designed you to enjoy that. And every one of us knows we need it, but we must make an intentional effort to have community, have relationships in our life. We've got to make time and make room for community. So it's not good that Adam is alone. Continuing in verse 18, the Lord God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. It is so important that God is so committed to making man a helper or a Helper that is fit for him. The same word helper is used for God as God provides aid or assistance for Israel, for his people. So God is a helper to Israel. And so God is going to make a helper fit for man, for Adam. It's the same word that Moses describes God, saying God was my aid or my helper as he delivered me from Pharaoh so this is not a helper sometimes we think in our business mind as, well, I have a little helper here that's going to help me do my job. It's going to run my errands and do my little task, my menial task. That's not what this is saying. This is a, a term that, is rephrase, that, is, that, that refers to an indispensable partner, a helper that is indispensable in this partnership that we have. Uh, In the New American Commentary, Matthew says, There is no sense that the woman is a lesser person because her role differs. In the case of the biblical model, the helper is an indispensable partner required, absolutely required, to achieve the divine commission. In chapter 1, we saw the woman is described as an equal image bearer that God made them in our image. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, is one God in three persons says, let us make man in our image. And God made them male and female. He made them in the image of God. So male and female are equal value, equal dignity, equal sanctity as image bearers of God. And there's a distinct role, just like God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Spirit, equal God, have distinct roles. The man and the woman have distinct roles. And here we see the emphasis on the woman, but the way it's written is very personal. God is very intent on personally creating this very important person, this woman, that the man needs desperately. And so God said it's not good. And Everything's good, but it's not good that we don't have the woman partner for this man. And so the dignity is off the charts for the woman in the way it's written. So in the biblical model, the helper is an indispensable partner required to achieve the divine commission. So what is she indispensable for? What is this in partnership endeavor that they are in that the man can't accomplish without her? Well, from the context We know it's to worship God, to trust and obey God. We've already seen that in the previous verses up till today, that that the complete purpose of man is that we trust and obey God, we enjoy Him by trusting Him, and we stay there with Him by obeying Him. And as we do that, we reflect His glory. And He says, now it's not good for you to try to do this alone. You need a partner. You need godly friends. You need community you need friendships and ultimately if one of those friends become your spouse this is what a marriage is all about this is why we should be teaching our children when you're looking for a spouse our culture calls it dating but there's other better ideas of how to go about that but as you look for a spouse you need to be looking do they encourage me to trust and obey jesus is that what they're doing are they trusting and obeying jesus if they are, then maybe that's a good fit for me. It shouldn't be primarily love, companionship, financial, all these different things. It should first and foremost be, do they encourage me to trust and obey Jesus? Am I willing to commit to the rest of my life of encouraging them to trust and obey Jesus? Companionship is a gift, but it's not the ultimate purpose Financial stability is a gift, but it's not the ultimate purpose. Love is a gift if, if you think of it in the sense of feelings that I get from this person, which is not the biblical term for love. That's a gift, but it's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is that the two come together in a covenant relationship for the purpose of spurring one another to love and good deeds. As we're looking for friends at school or as adults, as we're looking for friends that we want to connect with, we need to be connecting with people who lead us and promote us and spur us on to trust and obey Jesus. We don't need to be locking up with friends that are going to lead us away from Jesus. We want to reach those people, but we need friends. We need community. We need intimate relationships with people who are going to encourage us to worship Jesus. So it's not good that Adam is alone. So what does God do? He he parades the animals in front of Adam so that Adam can name them all. In verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord had caused every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens to be brought and brought them now to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now, I just stopped there. I can't help but just think this is a funny scene. All these animals parading, and Adam's like, I don't know. He looks at this thing. He's like, "Uh, elephant. Okay, let's call that an elephant. You know, water buffalo. You know, it's like, what in the world do you call these things? I'm sure he got to the. I'm sure there's some funny names out there because he's running out of things. He's like, I don't know. So he's caught this this parade of the animals. These nasty, dirty animals are parading in front of him, and he's just going: elephant, giraffe, zebra, water buffalo. You can see them all in Yubi's house. I mean, this is what's going on, (laughs) and he's just like, look, that's what these are. And then so we, we see him naming them, but what we see is really going on here. It's not just the naming of the animals. He's actually, this is the first website of searching for a match. This is the first matching opportunity. He is saying, I want you to look at all these and I want you to see. And Adam's going, no, 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 no. None of these are suitable. None of these are fit for me. So this is, this is God showing that there is no suitable helper of the animal kingdom of the creatures for, for man. And so once again we see the exaltation of man over the, the creatures, over the animals. That the man is superior. Man is uniquely made in the image of God. Only man is in the image of God. And so we're looking for a suitable helper. And the word suitable means there's a correspondence between them one that is like them. Man and woman share the human sameness that cannot be found elsewhere in creation among the animals. This elevates the dignity of humanity and the dignity of women to the highest place of all of God's creatures, of all of God's creation. And so we've seen... Human means being in the image of God, human means male and female, and now we see human means to be in worship, partnership, community, friendship, relationship, to bear forth together the image of God, that we would be the body of Christ. I mean, there is no greater visible representation of the glory of God than the church, which is called the body of Christ, the body of God on this earth now. We flesh out what it looks like to know God in the way we relate to one another. We bear the image of God. We reflect the glory of God. As people from all diversity of all the church global come together in the name of Christ loving each other, relating together and saying, this is because of Jesus Christ. This is the love of God made visible on earth. And we are to fill the earth with that kind of glory. So as God has brought these animals before, just one nasty, ugly animal after another, we see there's no suitable helper for man. And so, continuing in verse 20, we see, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Again, I just pictured this scene. Adam's looking at all these nasty water buffaloes and animals covered in dirt and nasty. And he's like, Really? This is where I'm going to find a, a helper? And then he passes out. God puts him, puts him under, does a little surgery. And When he comes to, there's this woman in all her glory, unashamed, if you know what I'm saying. And he says, Whoa, man. That's my helper. And it's a glorious scene. He sees the beauty of this one like him and says, this is who I can be in covenant partnership with. So the man says, this at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is one like me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so Eve is the suitable worship Partner. Adam recognizes his own likeness in her as they have correspondence of the same humanity, the same image bearing, the same flesh and bone. They were both human. They both bore the image of God and nothing else did the same. Humanity is on this pinnacle creation platform as image bearers of God. And look at verse 24. Therefore, the author says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so now we can pull it all together. In this verse, the author uses covenant language to describe what later Jesus appeals to as the foundational passage for the concept of marriage. So what we see is marriage is a covenant created to serve the greater purpose of our lives, to worship our Creator, more specifically to reveal His supreme wisdom, His supreme value through a joyful, trusting, obedient relationship with Jesus. Surprisingly enough, we see this as hindered by isolation and being alone, but we need others, be it friends, be it community, be it the the most intimate of friendships, of when we have a friendship with someone of the other sex, that we end up marrying them and become this one flesh relationship to, to have the most of intimate community with them for this purpose, the same purpose of bringing glory to God by living in a trusting, obedient relationship. And then if God wills it for many of us in that marriage relationship, he blesses us with children, we procreate, we fill this earth with others who we disciple them to live in a trusting, obedient, glorifying relationship until the earth is filled with people living in the presence of God to the glory of God, enjoying him fully. And that's God's design. That's what God's mission is. And so as we consider friendships, as we consider relationships, as we consider marriages, as we come to the altar and we state our vows, this is the purpose. We are worship partners, indispensable worship partners. This must infiltrate our thinking about marriage it must infiltrate our thinking about dating. It must infiltrate our thinking about choosing friendships at school. We must think about this when we think about when we covenant it together as a body, as a church. Everything we do, relationships, are for this purpose. It is not good to be alone. It is designed, divine design, that we have relationships to help us. Glorify God in a trusting, obedient relationship. So as we go back to our survey, the number one reason people get married is love. 93%, I think it was, 97%. That's like not a bad thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate, and when you use a good thing for the wrong purposes, it burns it out. I think about the time I used to have, have you ever seen the Super Mabel water tubes? They're like, you can fit 300 little kids on it on the, behind your boat. I remember blowing one of those up. I, I was like, okay, I need, so I used a hair dryer to blow it up. It blew it up, but it also blew up my hair dryer. It worked once because the motor was not designed to handle that. It was used for the wrong purpose. The designer of the hair dryer did not design it in mind to air up something like that the designer of marriage and your life did not design marriage for all those other purposes. The only purpose that will sustain your marriage and your friendships and your community relationships is that we exist to help each other glorify God. And see, what happens when we get this right in this idyllic scene, man and woman, friendships, community, marriages, instead of at each other trying to get what I thought I married you for, which leads to war, because James says you fight and you battle because you do not have what you want. And so when I marry you for financial stability and you're not providing that, then I'm going to wage war to get it. And we turn at each other, as we'll see in chapter 3, when the blame and division and shame sets in, but instead, when we are turning side by side, locking arms as worship partners, then the, the enemy is sin, the devil, the world, the flesh. And I'm helping my spouse fight that enemy. And I'm praying for you against those temptations. I'm, I'm blocking for you so that they don't come at you. I know your weaknesses and I'm helping you. And the same as my wife is doing that for me and she's fighting for me and she's encouraging me. If she sees me slipping, she's encouraging me. And we are not fighting each other. We are fighting together in order to continue to trust and obey the Lord. And I think we get that right about once a week, right? Because it's not easy. Because we tend to turn against each other. But here we see God's design is that we get side by side, become indispensable worship partners. But we live in a broken world with fractured relationships and with selfish desires and wrong motives. And, And so we know this is not easy business. But we know the Lord is a gracious God. He is all about redeeming and restoring and, and recreating. He's about grace and forgiveness. So whatever's gone on in the past of your relationships, I don't want you to sit here and just be racked with guilt. I want you to take that and just burn it at the cross. Jesus died on the cross for that. God is all about new beginnings. Today can be the day of a new beginning in your relationships, in your marriage. The enemy wants you to walk out of here, turn against each other, wallow in guilt. But Jesus says, if you trust me, I forgive you. I give you grace. I give you new beginnings. I can rebirth this marriage. And going forward, it can bring glory and honor if the two of you will come into a relationship for my purpose. I truly believe, and I've told my girls this, they're not really believers yet, but I truly believe arranged marriages can work. (laughs) I think that any man and any woman who will come together in a biblical commitment to say, I will spend the rest of my life laying my life down to help you trust and obey Jesus will be a glorious marriage. I'm still working on them, but so far not happening. So, what are the implications for this? Number one, never lose sight of your purpose. Your purpose is to help each other worship Jesus. Write that on your sticky notes, put it on your mirror, use lipstick, put it on the mirror. Our marriage is to Be worship partners. Maybe you have to just use letters, first letter of each word. Partnership. Worship partnership. That's the purpose. And every day, the world, the flesh, the devil, everything in this culture wants you to forget that purpose. Don't forget the purpose. Always treat each other as equal image bearers of God. Not one is less than the other. When you are looking in anger and frustration at your spouse or at your friend or at a church member, a community group, remember, they bear the image of God, sanctity and dignity of life. We do not tear that down. Try to remember that as we tame the tongue. Read Ephesians 5. It gives us tremendous, Paul gives us tremendous instructions for husbands and wife. Husbands, here's basically what he says to us. Lead your wife to worship God by giving yourself, write down, personally and sacrificially. Give yourself personally and sacrificially to the spiritual good or to the, all the good of your spouse personally and sacrificially. That means you've got to personally take ownership of your marriage, men. Personally, sacrificially for their good. This must be the guiding principle of our love for our wives. The the tone of our marriage should be one of giving ourselves personally and sacrificially for the benefit of our wives. Husbands, you are to give yourself to the cause of providing what is best for your wife, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That's your job description. Lay your life down to see to it. Personally, sacrifice, that means cost to yourself to see to it they have the mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional good that they need. Not necessarily everything they want, but what's good for them. Ephesians 5 28 says that men we are to nourish and cherish. That word cherish is, is impactful. Think of the things that you cherish in life. You got a, a car, a new car, and you polish it, and you don't want you park it in the far part of the corner so nobody dings it. You cherish that car, or you you're all about working out and you, you work out. You make time for it. You make sure that that gets in because you cherish that time. What do you cherish? What is it so important that everything else, nothing gets in the way of that? The Bible says that's your wife. You cherish her and you nourish her like you do your own body. And let me tell you how I take care of my body. When I'm hungry, I get fed. I get hangry. And I make sure food enters this body. When my wife is spiritually hungry, I need to be that committed, that passionate about making sure that she gets spiritually fed, that everything else stops because she needs something and I'm going to make sure it gets met. That needs to be our attitudes. We nourish and cherish them like we do our own bodies. Men, one last word to you. Regardless of where you are spiritually, many, many, most of the time, 99.99% of the time, I would say, when I'm in counseling with marriages and pre marriage counseling, the girl has been walking with Jesus since she was eight years old. And the man before me has been walking with Jesus since about eight o'clock that morning. (laughs) And I'm looking at him and I'm going, You're the spiritual leader. And I say, but you can do this. So men, here's how you be the spiritual leader in your home. You set the tone and the expectations. For example, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What does that look like? Well, maybe you just, this is just one example. Maybe you say, all right, I think it's important that you say to your spouse, to your wife, I think it's important that we have time in the word. And so I know the church is sending out this daily devotional. It's a short little reading. So why don't we read that together every day? But here's how you do it. You set the tone, but then you you say, look, you are an indispensable partner in this. You know that Bible. I don't even know the books of the Bible. And you've got them all memorized. And so what I'd like you to do is, after we read the text why don't you help us learn what it means? Help me understand it. Why don't we get a read? How do we do that? How do I do this? You've been doing it so long. I don't know how to do it. And you let her help. You admit that she can be really helpful in this. You don't just push off this responsibility and say I don't know. I can't lead her. She's been walking with Jesus forever. No, you say we're going to have a quiet time. When works? You're better at scheduling. You're better at the Bible. You're better at just about everything, but I'm going to set the tone. This is important. So can you help me? And I promise you, if she's where she needs to be, she'll say, oh, yes, and she'll probably cry. <laughs> so we set the tone, and we let her be an indispensable partner that God created for us. So wives, your primary job is not easy, but it's pretty simple to, to state. Your job, according to Paul, is to maintain a position or a posture that enthusiastically embraces and encourages that kind of godly leadership. Most of your job description in the scriptures is about responding. The man is to lead with godly leadership, point you to Jesus, and the wife is to say, yes, I want that. Not to say, I want to be the leader. I want that job. I want that. I'm better at you than that. Uh Uh-uh. Your job is to say, yes, thank you for leading. Thank you for doing that. And you're really good at it. That's the one time it might be okay to tell a white lie. You're really good at this. It's okay. Encourage his leadership. Encourage him to say, yeah, I appreciate you setting the tone. And he says, hey, you know what, church? We need to get to church, and we need to get on time, and so let's set our clock 15 minutes earlier. And you're thinking, ah. Say, you know what? That's good. That's good. And so you embrace that kind of godly leadership. So today's a new day. Forget the past. It's been forgiven. If you've turned to Christ and said, Christ, forgive me, You died on the cross to forgive me for the past and forgive me for all that. And you give me new life and you're all about redeeming and restoring relationships, Lord. Today is a new day and I want you to do something. One homework assignment. Think of one specific, not generic, specific example. They say, this is one new thing I'm going to do to encourage my spouse or my friend or my boyfriend or my community I'm going to do this one specific thing that I haven't been doing that's going to be a practical way that I'm going to encourage them to trust and obey. What I'm doing as I've been thinking about it is I'm going to ask my wife and daughter hey can we find a time to read this daily devotion that we're getting through the church together as a family. And I'm going to take one of the questions that's in the guide because they give one for every age group. They give one for babies and toddlers, kids, preschool and students. This week the student question, because my age is student age, high school age, how can our family stand on the truth of God's word when the world often sends the message, follow your heart or trust yourself, how can we stand on God's word? We'll talk about it, we'll pray and then we're moving on. But that's what we're going to do What are you going to do? Share it with your group this week. Share it with a friend so they can pray encourage you so that we can say, we're fulfilling our purpose. Father God, thank you for your gift of your word. Thank you for giving us clear instructions on marriage since you designed it. You know what it was designed for and only your purposes will be able to sustain marriage. And so, Lord, as we've already confessed Every single one of us could sit here and be racked with guilt that our marriage is not where it ought to be. But your gospel message is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our past has been wiped out, has been forgiven. And you call us to stand up for a new day to set plans, to to take responsibility, to fulfill your scriptures, to trust you today and to begin to obey. So as we sing this song of coming to the altar, I pray that you will mentally, emotionally, spiritually, the altar itself, the physical altar is open to you to come and pray. I just encourage you to come and just ask God to forgive you of things in the past, of your relational fractures, relational sin and just to restore you and give you a bright hope and confident future for the relationships you have going forward, that they'll be all to the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church, located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, Please visit us online at Norseverychurch.org.